If you, if you have a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we are coming down into the home stretch of our brief study of this little letter from Paul. Uh, also, before I continue, let me say, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be Bibles scattered out through the seats. If you don't see one, look around, flag somebody down. They'll be happy to pass one to you, and we'd love for you to take that with you uh, and to, to come to us with any questions you might have about what you find there. Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. I, I was scanning the headlines of the paper this morning and saw this really interesting story. I haven't had a chance to read it all the way through yet, but apparently there's some major... Uh, news being made in Afghanistan right now over this couple, man and woman, who want to marry, but they want to go outside of the arranged marriage system that's in place in Afghanistan and in, in, the, in the Islamic world broadly. Made headlines because the parents are calling for the government to kill them, both. That's what they've asked to be done in response to it. And it's just another reminder, it's got me thinking again, about how powerful religion is. I mean, a lot of times the most blatant, most, uh, most attention-grabbing stories that we see are the ones about religious violence. And we tend to associate that now with the Muslim world, but that's not the, that's not the only part of the world that has had this, this strain of religious violence in its history. And the reason, I mean, honestly, as repulsive as it is to us, there's, a, there's an understandable reason that religion often goes hand-in-hand with a passion that leads to violence, and that is that that ideas about God and the world and the way that it works, those ideas have dramatic implications for the way that we live. They shape life in some unavoidable, inevitable, and, and dramatic ways. So Martin Luther, for instance, is one of my favorite examples of a guy who lived under the constant threat of this kind of religious violence because his ideas were so dangerous. 500 years ago, theology could get you killed in the Christian world. Luther, of course, lived, with a, lived under a death sentence for most of his life. And one of the main reasons was that he, he became so disillusioned with a system for getting salvation that was most popular at that time. At that time in the Catholic Church in the medieval world, the church taught that Jesus' death for you erased the effects of um, eternal punishment for sin. But there remained another layer on top of that eternal punishment that they called temporal punishment. And that was something that had to be dealt with in this life. That was something that you had to chip away at through, through contri- contributing money to the church, buying things called indulgences, or through taking pilgrimages perhaps to, to uh, holy sites. It could be done through, uh, through service to the poor. It could be done through sets of prayers that you would pray in particular places or at strategic times. There were all these different methods in place for getting rid of that other layer that Jesus' death could not take care of. Luther became disillusioned with it because he saw how oppressive it was, that it was, it was leeching off of the poorest of the poor in his town. And then that drove him to read the Bible in some different ways. He began to read Paul in a new light and to see in Paul that his whole project was calling people away from supplementing Jesus' death with anything. His, Paul's project was to call people to trust that Jesus' death is sufficient to cover all sins, that there's no need for any works to be added to it. It's perfect. Well, that's a dangerous set of ideas. It's dangerous in a lot of ways. But the reason, some of the main reasons that Luther's, Luther was a wanted man is that that called into question the whole infrastructure of the Roman church. 
the whole system of people contributing and relying on the church for, for confessions and pilgrimages was made unnecessary if Luther was right and faith was all that was needed to recommend you to God. Maybe the bigger problem was that his ideas seemed to imply it didn't matter how you live. How could a society hold on to any kind of order if people could live however they want without worrying about divine punishment? Divine, the threat of coming before God and being punished was what scared people into behaving rightly. That was the theory. And if we tell them that their works have nothing to do with whether or not they're okay for all eternity, then we're telling them it doesn't matter how you live, aren't we? That was the threat. That's a question that Paul had to deal with. Think of Romans chapter 6. Paul even, even inserts this question into his argument, knowing that what he said raises that question naturally. He says, so we're gonna, should we sin more so that grace can abound? On your theory, shouldn't we sin more because then that would make God's grace look even better and it doesn't really have any effect on whether or not God accepts us? It's a, it's a big question. It's a question with all kinds of implications. And it's a question that's been raised for us, if not directly in the text... It's been raised inevitably by what Paul has already said in Colossians. Last week, we've been following along, especially in chapter 2, Paul's case for Jesus as an all-sufficient Savior, someone whose death is so perfect, has so completely canceled out anything that we owed, someone who, over his cross, has had nailed the record of all wrongs that we've done and who's handled them perfectly. We've been following his case for the sufficiency of that work. And last week we saw him draw out a a crucial implication of that. If Jesus' work is perfect and you don't have to add to it, then why in the world would you spin your wheels trying to follow someone else's set of rules? The end of chapter 2 was him tearing down these rules that some false teachers had tried to put over the heads of the Colossians. And I think the inevitable question that we come to at the end of that is if, if Jesus' death is so perfect that these things aren't necessary, then why does it matter what you do? Is there anything that is necessary for us to do? Does Jesus' work for us have any implication for how we live? Or should we just do what we want? That's where Paul turns in Colossians chapter 3. And here's the crucial truth. In Christian ethics... In the Christian understanding of how we should live the good life that's pleasing to God. What you do is based directly on what's done for you. What you do is based directly on what's already done for you. In other words, how you behave is to reflect the radical truth about who you are. Paul calls us in chapter 3 to be who we already are. In Jesus, and here's how it, here's how it breaks down. The first four verses give us an overview of of this idea of living the gospel, of living as a response to what's been done for us. And then in the next two sections of what we'll cover today, Paul gives us lists things to put off, things to put on. If the gospel is true, here are the implications for you. We're going to follow each of those sections in turn. So now, if you've found the the, the text, Colossians chapter 3. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read? Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. If, then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So also must you forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. You can be seated. So first of all, an overview, living the gospel. Gospel-centered living for Paul begins not with the self-denial that was called for by the false teachers in Colossae, as if sin was a problem that could be fixed by putting a cage over it. It calls not for self-denial, but for living out of a new self, for focusing on Christ and setting your mind there on who you are in Him. That's verses 1 through 4. It's only then, it's only from that positive source of power, not a negative source of power, a positive source of power, that sin can really be rooted out and replaced by Christ-likeness. That's a transformation that Christ gets glory for, not you and your willpower. If these previous paragraphs, the end of chapter 2, if those things are all about attacking some sort of arbitrary lifestyle requirements because they aren't connected to Christ, what these paragraphs show is what life connected to the head, to Jesus, actually looks like. A life of union with him that takes on a reflection of his character and witnesses to what he's like. He opens, in other words, with verses 1 to 4, with a call to be who you are. A reminder, a sort of summary of everything that he's already said so far in Colossians. A summary of who you are in Christ. And it's all about transfer. We've seen a couple of different images. We've seen him say, you once belonged to the kingdom of darkness, and now you've been transferred into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son. We've seen that 
you were united to Jesus and you died in him. But now, also still united to Jesus, you're, you're alive with a new life that comes from him. We've seen all, all throughout that what Paul describes is a life change, a new place from which to live. Verse 4, I, I love the image, of, or verse 3 rather. This is just another way of saying the same thing. He says, you've died and now... Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's a beautiful image, not, not of not being able to see something. That's only what we think of with hidden. We, we, we tuck something away and you can no longer see it. It's a mystery. But hidden in the sense of the Psalms, in the sense of being hidden in God under the shadow of his wings, hiddenness as an image of security. Who you are is one who is now buried in Jesus and in him, in the eyes of God and everyone else, your security is perfect and complete and needs no supplementing. That's who you are in Christ. So act that way. That's, that's Colossians 3. It looks a lot like Paul's prayer back in chapter 1 where he prayed thanking God for what he had already done for them in Jesus but then asking that, the gospel, that God would continue to work the gospel out in them. This tension between what's already completed and what has yet to be done, that's the tension that that chapter 3 represents. This is who you are, but you don't look like this quite yet. So gospel-centered living is less about behaving in order to earn God's favor. It starts with God's favor, and then it becomes a, a, a lifelong process of looking like someone who has received the favor of God in response to what he's done for you. That's, how, that's why Paul starts in the first four verses by reminding them of who they are in Jesus. And then in verse 5, he says, Therefore, put off these things. And, when he, and skipping down to, to verse 12, he says, Then put on these things. If this is who you are, then act like it. So he starts here and then gives us a list of vices in the next section and then virtues in the final section. That his image is one of putting off one set of garments and putting on another in its place. But the key, and here's the main difference you've got to get a hold on, the difference between Paul's lists and the lists of those he condemned in chapter 2, their lists that he repeated back to us, don't handle this, don't touch that, don't taste this. The difference between their lists and Paul's lists is that theirs are arbitrary. They have no connection to Jesus. They're just a list of rules. Whereas Paul's lists flow directly from the nature of what Jesus has done for us. Their lists are kind of like deciding, I'm going to please God by not drinking Coke on Wednesdays. It's just completely random. God hasn't asked that of us. It's something we make up that we know we can fulfill that we think is going to help somehow. That's arbitrary. It has no connection to Jesus. Those lists are useless. Paul's lists are directly connected to what Christ has done for us. And, and the trick for us today, the, the main task for us, is to understand how each of these individual things he calls us to traces back to what Jesus has already done for us. They're not, it's not a comprehensive list by any means. It's examples of how the truth of what has been done for us in Christ plays itself out in how we live among other people. That's what we've got to, that's what we've got to attack this morning. You can see the theme... Scattered all throughout. It's in the therefores and the thens that draw conclusions from, from the fact of 
who we are in Christ. It's in, it's in the fact that Jesus calls us to put on things, or Paul calls us to put on things as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, those who are already in his love. And it's in the fact that there are references to thanksgiving scattered all throughout these verses. You act as those who act from thanksgiving and not to earn God's favor. That's the overview. That's what it is to live a gospel-centered life. So let's look at the details. At the details. Paul calls us first to put off the old and then to put on the new. And in verses 5 through 11, when he calls us to put off the old self, I think we can summarize his two lists as him calling us to a gospel-centered breaking of the bonds of pleasure and pride. Pleasure and pride. Two root motives that drive the way the old self, who is not united to Christ, behaves towards other people that are replaced now because of the gospel. The pleasure. Verse 5 gives us Paul's first list. Put to death whatever is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So his first list begins with an action with sexual immorality. The word that's translated that way here is a word that could mean just about anything other than sex and marriage. Any kind of sexual behavior outside of marriage qualifies. And we might think, when we, when we, when we hear this case made for union with Christ and for behaving who we are, and then Paul gives us his first example of what this looks like, he goes to sexual immorality. Why in the world? Isn't that just as arbitrary, we might be tempted to think, as any of those those rules that the false teachers were throwing around, the don't handles and don't taste and don't touch? What, is that, what could that possibly have to do with the gospel? That's a fair question. We might be tempted to think that, that his preoccupation here with sex is just a relic of his culture, a sort of puritanical obsession with things that are physical and, 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 and a distaste for the body. That might be where we're tempted to think, but that would be a misunderstanding of where Paul's writing from. The Roman world was every bit as sexually permissive as ours is, if not more so. Paul was writing not as a reflection of his culture, but as a counterculture to what was prominent at the time. But there's a bigger reason it's not just arbitrary. It's not arbitrary because it gets at the heart of what it looks like for a life to be rooted in the gospel. The fact that he starts with sex and specifically with, with inappropriate sex. It goes back to the fact that Paul is more concerned with the roots of behavior inside the person and in their heart than he is with the behavior itself. He's concerned about the behavior itself, of course, but he, he doesn't see the behavior as something you can get rid of without tracing it down to its roots. And for Paul, sexual immorality... It's just a sign. It's just a fruit of a whole series of internal battles that have already been lost. Just like an apple is the sign that the tree that it hangs from is an apple tree. When you get to sexual immorality, it's a sign that there is a tree in place that is producing that kind of fruit. And, and that's where he wants to, to, to attack. It's especially relevant to what it is to live a gospel-centered life because this is a big physical step that you just don't take. You don't fall into this kind of step. You've got, there's a chain of justification that has to take place before you get there. And it's in that chain of justifying acts that we get to the heart of a, of a life that is not reflecting who Jesus is. Now, look at verse 5. 
You can trace this chain. If you start with the act, look at where it ends. Before you get sexual immorality, you get certain kinds of impurity. You give in to that. It's a stepping stone. Before that, you get passion. Not just generic passion, but specifically evil, lustful passion, evil desire. And then ultimately, it goes back to covetousness or greed. Maybe your translation says greed. So for Paul, sex is never just sex. It is, an, it is coming out of a place of greed, a desire for more, a desire to, be, to, to, to supplement what you already have, to be discontent, in other words, with what God has given you. It's ultimately idolatry, and we can understand why he would describe it that way, right? Idolatry is to put anything other than God at the center of our lives, the thing that drives us, whatever it is that gives us purpose and meaning, what we're serving, you might say. And, and for someone to take the chain of steps that ends in sexual immorality, it's, it shows that what's driving them is the desire for pleasure, for something that's more, to, to gratify themselves, ultimately. Paul traces it back to a failure to root your life in Jesus. Ultimately, it is a failure to submit to God, but it's also a failure to be content in who you are in Christ. It's a gospel failure. So our culture, probably more than any in, in recent memory, is a culture that thinks sex is just sex. That's common enough to hear, but God doesn't look at it that way. It always, mis, sexual misconduct always represents competition for lordship and allegiance in your heart. And I think that has everything to do with why Paul begins his list of what it looks like to put off the old self and put on the new with this sin. The only solution, of course, to get, is to get rid of the idolatry. The way to get rid of the idolatry is to embrace the fact that you're already hidden in Christ. You're hidden in Him. You've got everything that you need in Him. You don't need to continue trying to build on that, to, to supplement it through, through tracking, tracing down or grabbing hold of the latest opportunity for pleasure. So act like it. Act like you don't need to run after other gods. What you've got to recognize, if, if you specifically are struggling in this area, what you need to recognize, if you have any hope at all of finding victory here, is that what you're doing in pursuing this kind of pleasure is compensating for a lack of affection for Jesus. What you're doing is compensating for a lack of affection for Jesus. Discipline matters. Fall back on that if that's all you've got, but don't be fooling, fooled into thinking that it's just a matter of disciplining yourself. You'll never get any kind of victory here. You'll never replace the idol of pleasure in your heart unless your solution is connected to the head from whom all growth comes, unless you root it in Christ. That's pleasure. Paul's next list gets at pride. It gets at a list of negative ways of relating to each other. In this list, he starts with the attitude that's behind it all and works his way to the actions that come out of those attitudes. But it's the same principle, that there's this deep connection between what you do on the outside and what's actually in you, who you are on the inside. Look at verse 8. Now you also put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, and do not lie to each other. These come as a package deal for Paul. And I think you can summarize them all. What's, what the tie that binds them together is human pride. Consider anger. He starts with anger. 
Why does anger have power? I'm talking here about inappropriate anger. We all know there's certain kinds of anger that's good. Even God is angry. Jesus showed it all the time. There's certain anger that's good. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about inappropriate anger. Where does that come from? Doesn't it come when our interests are threatened? When what we want for ourselves is challenged by somebody else? When somebody else fails to give us what we think we deserve? When something about who we think we are has been challenged, that's what makes us angry. Isn't anger, sinful anger, a product of pride and self-love that we think we're threatened by somebody else's actions? Now, consider the actions. Paul, anger, math, and uh, wrath and malice could, could really be captured under the same head. There are different varieties, the same kind of emotional response against someone. But the actions that flow straight out of that are all about how we relate to each other. So he says slander or abusive speech. Maybe your translation says obscene talk. It's lashing out at someone. And what's the purpose of that? Is it not, whether it's behind somebody's back, whether that's your style or your confrontational, you have to go at them. This abusive kind of speech, slander or directly confrontational speech, what is that if not an attempt to knock someone down a rung, either in the eyes of others or, or in their own eyes? What is that if not to attempt to knock someone else down and then on the flip side to raise yourself up a rung? Isn't that what it's about? Because in knocking them down, you, in, in comparison to them, as a reflection of them, you appear to be stronger. Isn't it ultimately rooted in pride? We want, to, we want to protect our interests in the eyes of others, and so we lash out with speech? That's not proper? Or what about lying? That's Paul's next example. Don't lie to one another. What is lying? Why do we do that if not to protect some image of ourselves that we want to present to other people? Isn't don't we lie to keep something hidden that we think would negatively affect how people perceive us that might bring us down in their eyes? I'm not talking about I'm not talking about all the other cases we could the, the, the ways that we could that we could qualify this a bit. I'm not talking about lying to protect slaves on the Underground Railroad here, or or lying to protect you know Jews that you're harboring during the Holocaust. We all know about those classic ethical issues that everybody says. Well, it would have been okay if we if you lied in that sense. Well, maybe we're not going there. I'm talking about I'm talking about what we do on an almost daily basis. The times where we spin things, we're not maybe not a, maybe not a blatant lie, but we spin the truth in a way that presents us in the best possible light. You know what I'm talking about? Why do we do that? if not to protect some image of ourselves that we don't want to see brought low. We lie because of pride. A gospel-centered life is one that is not in bondage to pride, that is not forced to serve self-image at all costs. When Paul calls us, when he reminds us that we're hidden with Christ in God, and therefore fully secure and needing nothing else to satisfy anything that we need. When, when Paul describes us that way and then says put off these things, he's saying these are things that someone who's really secure in Jesus don't have to do. It's not necessary. Security in Christ rips the legs right out from under any need to lie. You don't have a need to establish yourself over others because Jesus is everything and in some mysterious way, he's in everyone. And to try to bring them down is to try to bring Jesus down. That's what I think is Paul, the, the payoff of Paul's comment in verse 11. He doesn't connect it with any of those, those nice transitional words that help us know how it fits with the rest of the passage. He just 
states this principle after he's listed these things. He says, here in Christ, there's not Jew or Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and he's in all. You know what the, the payoff of that is? As someone who's hidden in Christ and now united to him, you don't need the distinctions that give you some sort of value or meaning that come from believing you're part of a, of a superior race or cultural grouping. Racism is much less of a temptation for us, at least blatantly now, but, but rural versus urban or southern versus northern, there, we still have our classifications that we use to try to give us some sense of leg up and identity over others. In Christ, everyone's the same. Christ is all and in all. When he's all that matters, those distinctions lose their power. And those distinctions go hand in hand with the kind of things we try to do through anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech and lying. It's all about gaining, it's gaining some sort of position over others. That's empty and needless for someone who's securing Christ. So put it off. It's not who you are. Paul's next list verses 12 through 17, are all about putting on the new. So the gospel calls us to be who we are, and that means replacing some of the things that normally guide our action. But it also means that we live in a different way, not because we're trying to gain some favor, but because we are different, because there's some new power that's working itself out in us. We're united to Christ. He's transforming us, and we have as an all-powerful motive this thanksgiving for what he's accomplished for us. That's the claim. That's the power for putting on the new. What believers are called to do is just as closely connected with what's been done for them in Jesus. If we're joined to Christ, it makes sense that our lives would come to reflect that fact, that we would, that we would reflect his life, that we begin to live for others in the same way that he lived and died for us. And, and here's the gist of it. Here's the gist of the principle for what you put on. Without Jesus... We're stuck like hamsters in a wheel. We're constantly working at being good enough to balance out where we failed. Some sort of cosmic balancing act to try to come out on the good side of the equation. We're trying to be good enough to satisfy ourselves, our expectations, or the expectations of others. And, and it's this central drive that explains where anger comes from, where lying comes from or anything else that's necessary to protect our image in the eyes of others gets its power. But in the gospel, we're told to give it up. That the best things we could do are nothing but filthy rags. We're told that our works are just a lost cause, so we're worse off than we thought we were. But that in Jesus, we're offered forgiveness and perfection that's secure because it belongs to him and not to us, because it's his and is given to us. That is a truth that makes us perfectly free with no more standards to satisfy. The wheel doesn't have to keep turning anymore. But it also frees us up positively to care no longer about building our own resume and turning to use our, our energies and our abilities to serve other people. It frees us from one style of life to another style of life. Again, Martin Luther has captured this in one of the best ways that, that I've seen. In a tract that he wrote in 1520 called The Freedom of the Christian. He says his, his, his key ideas in that tract are that the, that the Christian is perfectly free, subject to no one. That was Paul last week, right? 
don't have to listen to these people's rules. You are free because Jesus has brought everything you need. But he's also subject to everyone. Because in that freedom, you have been turned loose from serving your own interests and and called to follow Jesus' pattern and serve other people. This is the way he put it in Freedom of a Christian. It's beautiful. Although I am an unworthy and condemned man, my God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part, out of pure and free mercy, so that from now on I need nothing except faith, which believes that this is true. Why should I not therefore freely and joyfully with all my heart and with an eager will do all things which I know are pleasing and acceptable to such a father who has overwhelmed me with his inestimable riches. That's freedom in Christ and a new motive. Then he continues, I will therefore give myself as a Christ to my neighbor. Just as Christ offered himself to me, I will do nothing in this life except what I see is necessary, profitable, and salutary to my neighbor. Since through faith... I have an abundance of all good things in Christ. In faith, we have everything we need. That's Luther's point. So we're free. But that turns us loose to give our lives to serving other people in the model that Jesus set. That's the explanation for where Paul is going in his list of what to put on. He starts it in verse 12. He says, Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bear with one another, forgive each other, and ultimately put on love. Those who have been set free from matching the standards set by others are set free to put on, first of all, Jesus' love. And it's a full-textured love. It starts with compassionate hearts. A more literal way to say that is he's calling us to bowels of compassion, something in our gut that we feel for other people. And that's great, and we see that in Jesus. That's something we should want. But he calls us also at the same time to humility because compassion on its own could be, a, could be a source of pride for us as we look at all the wonderful things we've done, spending our life serving other people. If compassion is not also wed to humility, it's not Jesus' kind of love. If it's not matched to patience and meekness, the kind of patience that can endure others who, who maybe treat us poorly, if it's a kind of compassion that only continues to work as long as the person who's the object of it is someone that you like or that likes you, it's not Jesus' compassion. His compassion is one that's wed to patience and long-suffering as he gives his life, not just for people who don't like him, but for the very people who are costing him his life. He sacrifices himself for those who have done him wrong. That's what Jesus' love looks like. That's why Paul says, Jesus' love compassion and kindness that he's calling you to put on, it's the kind of love that bears with one another. When you've got to complain against someone, you don't let it fester. You don't hold it over their head. You forgive them for it because in Christ, the Lord has forgiven you. It's a gospel-centered love rooted directly in what has been done for us. That's Jesus' love. That's who you are. He also calls us to put on Jesus' peace very briefly. He says, let the Peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are called in one body. That's a peace that has all kinds of implications. It's peace because at one time we're described as being enemies of God. And as enemies of God, we stood under the threat that he would come down on us as he will come down on all of his enemies. As enemies of God, we had no hope. But in Jesus, we have found 
reconciliation with the high king. We had tried to overthrow his place and put ourselves there. Jesus absorbed that hostility and the penalty that it required, and he brings us back into peaceful citizenship. There's real external peace with God that's implied here. But that's also a peace that communicates peace in our hearts, a peace that doesn't fear what's to come because it has the pledge of God's love and favor. It's an internal peace that comes from submission to one who is, who is strong enough to uphold us, a ruler who can carry the burden that we couldn't. And it plays out in social peace because when you're at peace with God, And when you have peace in your heart because you know that there is nothing that can come against you in Jesus, you have peace with others because they're no longer seen as threats. They're no longer seen as those who you have to eliminate in order to establish yourself. But they're seen as those for whom Christ died. They're seen as objects of forgiveness, modeling the forgiveness we were given. And there's peace that comes from it. And finally, we're called to put on Jesus' word. I mean there... Paul finishes his list with a call to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Jesus' word is also a word about him. It's the word that he came preaching. It's what he went all over. He spent his life walking around in, in, in Palestine proclaiming the fact that the kingdom is here, that he brought it in, and that if you submit to it through repentance and faith, then you can have peace with God. It's a word that means everything to us. And for the word to dwell in us richly... It's the kind of word that we're always talking about, that finds its way into all of our conversations, that drives our songs and hymns and spiritual songs, that has us teaching and admonishing each other, not just formally like I'm doing now or like we do in our Sunday school classes, but but one-on-one, speaking into each other's lives with the wisdom that comes from the gospel. It's a gospel-centered requirement because the gospel shapes everything about what we think and what we do as a church. Do you find that this is true of the way you speak? Do you find that when you're having dinner with somebody or when you're talking after the service that that Jesus is finding his way into your conversations? If you have the kind of excitement that comes, if you're being who you are, the excitement that comes from what's been done for you, it's going to find its way into how you talk to other people. It's going to find its way into our community as a buzzword almost. The best example that I can think of is if you had if you'd talked to me about just about anything last fall, particularly late November and or December, chances are you were going to get an earful about the birth of my son Walter and the success of the Auburn Tigers, both of which made last year a really great fall for me. It, it was an organic thing. I didn't have to make a point to work those things into into my conversations. I didn't have to... I didn't have to make a point to talk about those things before I moved on to like normal life things. Those things were life things, right? They, they, they found a way. They, they were, especially the birth of Walter, we'll just set the, for the purposes of this sermon, we'll set the Auburn Tigers thing aside. They were life-shaping things that touched everything in my life. So to talk about life was also to talk about that thing, to see it through that lens. And, and that's the image, I think, of the word of Christ dwelling richly in us. It somehow... It finds its way into our conversations about everything, from work to school to parenting to whatever it is. Because that word is the word on which we build our lives as individuals and as community. I hope it's clear that the gospel has radical implications for how we live. It sets up for us not standards that we've got to meet if we're to earn God's favor 
but it gives us rather a kind of DNA that just shapes the way that our lives grow. It sets the pattern for who we become as Christians because we already are someone. Jesus' work is finished and complete and it's perfect. But in our practice, in reality, we are still becoming who we are. That's a process that the Spirit is all over in our lives. And we're called to embrace it, to see these lists as beautiful goals to strive for through the power of the Spirit and for the glory of Christ, not for our own. That's our prayer. Would you pray with me now? Lord, this is a character that is beautiful to us, but so far outside of our ability to manufacture, to develop, to, to grow. We, we know that our only hope for growth is a growth that comes from God because we're connected to Jesus. And so we ask that you would continue the good work in us that you began. We know that it's only going to be finished if you finish it. We pray for eyes that see life, even on a day-to-day basis, as an opportunity to express thanksgiving for what has been done for us in Jesus. Would you fashion us and mold our hearts to love your word and to drive our lives towards it and through it? Thank you for a word that won't pass away, for one that's living and active. Now mold us according to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.